Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. On today's show, we're going to look back at the Italian round of World SBK when we saw a thrilling weekend of racing at the Mizano World Circuit. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie on today's show. And uh, Gordo, it was uh, definitely a little bit different down in Italy this week. We had uh, 32 degrees air temperature at one stage. We had 55 degree track temperature. This was really where it seemed that we were firmly back into the summer of racing. Oh, hi, Summer Mizano. Um, when it's hot, because it's by the seaside, it gets really humid as well. Um, but no, it was it was a fantastic weekend uh, because of lots of reasons. But the, the the where we were, having missed out going anywhere in Italy for a couple of years, uh, some fans in the grandstands, the feel good factor was off the scale, and we had very tense races. It might not have been all time World Superbike classics, but uh, it was very very tense, and we got another uh, another bunch of winning people so you can't argue with that you can't ask for much more tell you what Gordo like I was having this chat when the Italian Grand Prix was on a couple of weeks ago and uh, David and Neil and Adam were in the group and a few others from the MotoGP paddock and you know they were saying about oh I love Mugello it's the best week of the year this that and the other how great is is it you know we're in the middle of Tuscany and uh, all I could think of was, I actually prefer Mizano, because even though Mugello is a fantastic track, it's great to go to, there's one road in, one road out, You're, you are a little bit more isolated out in Mugello, so it does come down to where you stay and different things, whereas for us in Mizano, we're right down on the beach, you're at the Italian holiday destination, there's good food, there's, well, unbelievable weather for us this week, and uh, for me, it's probably my favourite round in Italy. Well, uh, no, I mean, I, I can understand from a personal point of view that being the case. Uh, Mugello is an awesome racetrack. Mizano as a racetrack is actually more interesting than it looks on paper, even though we go in an opposite direction from the way we did when I first went there. Uh, it's, it is an amazing event, but it is an event, and all those Italian races are somehow an event. We don't go to Monza anymore, but you knew you were at the, the, one of the original homelands of racing. And in one of its original homes, Monza made the the hairs in the back of my neck stand up every time you got out of the car and walked towards the, the media centre. You would just hear this whistle and then scream through the trees that you couldn't see. It was like being at a circuit version of the TT. Mizano, the racetrack is great. They keep making improvements. It's very flat, but it also has some real challenging corners. That Corvone, even though you're slowing down through it rather than speeding up what you did in the opposite direction, is an awesome corner. And then it presents itself with two overtaking chances at the end. I reckon there must be six corners, as I know you can have a passing opportunity at, and make it stick if you get it run right. Yeah, I was asking a few of the riders actually about that at the start of the weekend, because obviously Garrett Gerloff having to come from pit lane to then come through the pack. I was asking a few guys, you know, where is the overtaking opportunities around this track? And uh, some guys said, oh, well, turn one, you can make a move. Turn four, you can make a move. Turn eight, you can make a move. Turn 10, you can make a move. Down the back straight, through the right-hander at the end of the lap at the hairpin, through the last corner. And you're actually then thinking, okay, well, whereabouts can't you make a move? And it turns out we saw moves all the way through the races here in, in Mizano. The one problem was this was probably too tight a field because it seemed that even if you were faster than another rider if a if a gap opened up you just couldn't really bridge it bridging a second gap or a two second gap would take a long time or it would take you know someone struggling a, a little bit with the front tire was an issue we saw this weekend yeah and the thing is that once riders find their pace it's very difficult because the bikes got different characteristics it does actually work in different sectors all, but all racetracks, bikes work better in sector one or two relative to each other. But those differences are much more uh, profound at Mizano. Um, if memory serves me right, Jonathan actually passed Rinaldi at the Corvone in, um, in one of the races. And, and I mean, that's amazing. I'm sure that's, uh, if my memory's right, that's what happened. But it's because you could see he was toiling a little bit there compared to him. And the same in the slower corners. Jonathan would be saying, well, I just couldn't get past those guys at the, in that whole section. Um, and that's what made it made the, the racing interesting. You had to watch it to, to understand the nuances, but every bit, every bike and rider had a good section, a bad section, so that's why we ended up with results that were quite similar. Yeah, we obviously had three different manufacturers taking out all three podium spots yes. each of the races. It was Michael Rubin, Rinaldi on the Ducati, Top Rack Razgari on the Yamaha, and Jonathan Ray on the Kawasaki. And I thought this was one of those weekends where you did see that there isn't a dominant bike 
in World SBK this year. There isn't one manufacturer that you look at and say, they've got this thing sewn up. This was another weekend where you saw that if the Ducati is in the right operating window, it's very difficult to beat it. The Yamaha now seems to work everywhere and in really hot track conditions. That was always their issue in the past. And Kawasaki, even though there isn't a massive change from last year's bike to this year's bike, it looks different visually aerodynamic upgrades but in terms of mechanical and terms of the chassis and different different things like that it isn't that different to the past but they've managed to just make it a little bit more of a complete package johnny's had podiums in all the races so far this year so you can't knock the bike at all but uh, i think it just goes to show just how close it is right now yeah absolutely um it's everybody's making advances and because the kawasaki has evolved and not had three huge makeovers over its model life. They're all evolutions, however much or little, or however many regulations come into effect it. Um, it's now reaching a kind of peak point, I think, where there's not much more to come. Obviously, they didn't get the 500 revs they were expecting this year, which might have made an even bigger difference. Um, but the Yamaha, yeah, just began becoming more and more rounded uh, everywhere you go. The Ducati's finicky, but I think we've also seen another element of that is that, that at somewhere like Mizano, a small rider and a local rider who's done a million laps in Mizano and every kind of bike you can imagine uh, won the first two races. And the proof of that to me is Axel Bassani, who did very, very well as a privateer, six and seven, if I remember correctly, in, in the Sunday races. And he's not a huge guy. He's on a customer Ducati, which is not that far off. The regulations dictate it nowadays and um, people, it's been around long enough for people to understand how to get it going quite well. It's still the most finicky bike, but it's also the fastest bike when it's all working right. But it had some limits on it at Mizano. There were some things that the other bikes did better, and that's what we want. I want to go different tracks where this weekend it's a Yamaha track, next weekend it's a, a Kawasaki track, the next weekend Ducati track, and then hopefully BMW and, and Honda as well. Well, that's obviously quite good as well, Gordo, because we started the season in Aragon where the Kawasaki was able to show its colours and we saw Jonathan Ray pick up two race wins and another podium. We saw that, uh, obviously, we went to Estoril next. That was a track that we expected to be a Yamaha track and we saw Toprak able to get three podiums. We actually saw Andrea Locatelli come through as well and have a really strong weekend. Yes. So Yamaha were clearly good that weekend and then Ducati were strong in Mizano. And now after this, we'll go to Donington and Assen. Donington, obviously, a track where... It's always been the case that the rider seems to make more of a difference at Donington. Just understanding the nuances of an undulating track, a little bit twisty in some places. You need to have a lot of confidence in yourself as much as in the bike around Donington. And then we go to Aston, a track where lots of guys go really well. Johnny's excellent there. Scott Redding's always a good results there. Michael Vandermark on the BMW is going to be strong there as well. So I think these next couple of rounds, that's going to give us a real indication of the kind of form we can expect for the full season. But you couldn't look at the next number of races and say, I'm going to pick you know, Rider X to win this race or to, you know, this bike is going to be dominant. I think we're, we're really lucky right now that we're turning up at every event with a question mark about everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one thing that has always been the same is uh, Jonathan being there or thereabouts. But other than that, you really can't predict what's going to happen. You would have put Jonathan down for one of the race wins this, week this weekend, but he's a difficult Friday. And Friday is everything for set up and qualifying now. Saturday's almost like in a rehearsal. The the FP3 sessions are a rehearsal for Super Pole to make sure you get a good grid position. So if you lose half your Friday, you by the standards of Ray, toil slightly on race days, but he's still got three podiums. Everybody else, I mean, Scott Redding never got a podium this weekend, but you can't tell me that he's not going to win a race at Donington or Aston or win three of them. You know, it just depends on how it all works for him. Yeah, this was the first time Redding's actually left a World Superbike meeting without picking up a podium, which shows just how consistent he's yeah. been over the course of his time in the championship. We're going to focus on today's show on the top three manufacturers. We're going to focus on Kawasaki, Ducati and Yamaha, but uh, we're going to have a, another Superbike show coming up where we look into the challenges that we've seen for BMW and for Honda as well, because it has been a tough time for them over the start of this season. But I think for Mizano, there's an awful lot for us to bite into from those leading three manufacturers, Gordo. And I'm going to kick off with Ducati and Rinaldi because this was, I think, about as popular a race win as you can imagine for Rinaldi. Obviously able to pick up the Tiso Super Bowl race win as well, but uh, 
for Rinaldi, these opening two races and indeed Sunday's race as well, just a, a real complete weekend for him, real complete package. Absolutely. Um, he just showed what he's got. And I think there is more to Rinaldi than we've, we've thought in the past. Um, we always kind of had an idea on the outside the Italian world that maybe Rinaldi was a favoured son, etc. But he's come up the hard way with no money. Um, he's had to fight his way through his whole career. Uh, he obviously deserves the rides he's got. He didn't have a great start to the season. And the most pressurised job in the paddock is factory Ducati rider when you're an Italian. It has broken many a rider. Um it didn't and doesn't seem to have broken him. His self-confidence, his ability. And, okay, it's his home track. But Mazzano can also be a very, very difficult place. And he absolutely is that. If it wasn't for the pure determination of top rack, from, that's his own words, he just said, no, no, I just wanted to win a race and that was it. And then the ability to follow that through, Ronaldo would have left with a hometown hat-trick. So it, it, it was great to see because that's another guy that looks like, you know what? He's had the chance and he's taken it with both hands now, especially after such a, by his standards, difficult start in Aragon. Then better in Estoril where he didn't have a great time last year. and But to come like he did at, at Mizano, to finish where he did, was deeply impressive. And why wouldn't he be able to carry that on through the rest of the year? Maybe not to that level, but we've got another one. We've got another guy that you're going to have to really take seriously. Yeah, and uh, obviously enough for Ronaldo. He's had three non-scores through the start of this season so far, but he's fifth in the World Championship now. He's not that far behind his teammate, Scott Redding, as well, even with all those issues he's had. And I think when you look at how he rode all the way through this weekend, I thought he built himself up nicely in the Friday free practice sessions. He seemed to be very methodical in working his way through the different tyres and then just making his decision on what he wants to do. And, uh, you know, we saw in the opening race the weekend comes from the second row of the grid to lead after six corners. And it was a great start off the line. And then he tried to immediately tack Jonathan Ray down in towards turn two. Didn't quite make it stick. Got a little bit boxed out. Top rack comes through and suddenly you're in a situation where you've got Ray and Razgadioglu in front of you. And in the space of two corners, he picked them both off as well. He was really able to take advantage of the Ducati working in a really good way. And I think it's hard not to look at how he rode that bike and think of Bautista a few years ago. That was, yeah, you've taken the words out of my mouth there. Um, Ducati up himself another small rider, which is uh, a good description of both of those guys. Um, we saw what the Ducati with a rider who, with confidence and of the size of a Batista or a Rinaldi, could do two years ago. And it was awesome. And it was like championship over by five rounds in. I mean, we were all, it was done. I mean, I actually wrote a column that said, Are we done yet? Thinking, you know, this is amazing. The Ray era ends now. And okay, it certainly didn't turn out that way, but that's because things changed. Um, but it was quite evident what the Ducati can do with it. Not just the right rider, but the right size of rider. And you would think that's the opposite because it's the most powerful bike, the highest revving bike. So that should then allow it to compensate for the taller riders, the bigger riders and the heavier riders. It's physics. The heavier rider gets is a harder time accelerating. Um, but it's, it's ironic that the fastest bike seems to respond best to the smallest riders. It, 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 does, it seems an unmissable factor. Uh, and the overall competitiveness. Um, so maybe that's something that, you know, Scott Redding looked like slightly subdued on Sunday night and, and slightly concerned because the same guy in the, sa- in, in the same bike uh, was the guy who was beating him as his own teammate. That that's, dif- that's difficult for a rider to take. Yeah, and I think Redding should be concerned as well because, you know, he's third in the World Championship as it is right now. He obviously had his non-score in Estoril whenever he had a crash and a penalty. But when you look at this season, he took a gamble on slick tyres in the wet conditions or the mixed conditions in Aragon. That pays off. He picks up a race win. He was a bit behind the curve in terms of his pace in Estoril. So he takes a gamble and uses the softest compound tyre, the X tyre, the one that coming into that weekend, he had talked so much about, complained so much about. And then he uses that tyre. He wins the race in Estoril. He's won two on the bounce. It looks like he's got that momentum behind him. And then it doesn't really quite work out from that point on for him. And it's been it's been a tricky start to the year for him. And he's now 45 points behind Johnny. And I think if there's any rider you don't want to spot early season points to, it's Jonathan Ray. 
and Scott's given him a big advantage. Yes, he has. Um, everybody kept talking about Reading being the, the number one challenger for Jonathan again, and I, we can totally understand that. But that's a small mountain to come back from now for anybody. Um, it's, yeah, he's nowhere near where he thought he would be. And I think the problem, the biggest problem he's got is that they keep going round in circles. And they do, there is no obvious area where they need to improve. Uh, they think they're, and it's kind of reminiscent of last year, where they have a great weekend and then not a great weekend. After three years of the bike and then the second year of the bike and rider combination, you, okay, last year was a short year and it was strange for everybody, but I, it is, that's the thing that I'd be concerned if I was reading. Not your ability, not anything else. It's that why is it not working? Why, why can't I get it to work every weekend? I think as well as that, Gordo, you could look at Chaz Davis and think the same because Davis is obviously into his third year with the bike. Same, Redding's on his third year with the bike, obviously one year in BSB trim. But uh, for Chaz Davis, came away from last weekend with just, uh, it was obviously a disappointing weekend. He had no points. He crashed out of each of the races, or he crashed out of two of the races and retired from the last race. But uh, for Chaz Davis, podium in Estoril, and then you go to Mizano with a lot of expectation, and it just ended up being quite a flat weekend for him. Yeah, and I don't really know why. You would imagine that when the other two Ducati riders were going really well, uh, and even Scott finished fourth in all the races, he wasn't nowhere. Uh, he just wasn't capable of, of winning. Um, yeah, that was a tough weekend, especially after Estoril. Um We would expect, given the quality of the bike that Chaz is on, given the fact that he's still got a lot of factory support, and that team has shown what he could do last year with Ronaldo as well, and there are Ducati people around and inside. Um, it was just obviously a, a, a very poor weekend for Chaz. Um, so yeah, I'd, if I was him, I'd be wondering why that all happened as well. Because you thought that okay, Esther was the not a breakthrough. The guy's so experienced and he's been riding the Ducati a long time. But when you change something, put him in a new team, that was like wow, you know, on the podium already. That's great, you know. And it looked like it. Well, he's happier. He's got a crew chief he likes everything else. So Mizano has to remain a bit of a question mark. Maybe they know all the reasons why now, or and maybe they knew at the time, but they certainly didn't seem to be able to do anything about it. And and who knows? Maybe that final retirement is just someone, which is a factor of the first crash. But yeah, it's surprising that it, it wasn't a bit uh, a bit better. The whole thing didn't go a bit better for those guys. Yeah, Chaz now 100 points, well, 101 points behind Jonathan Ray in the championship standing. So, obviously enough, he now needs to just move on to a round-by-round basis, try and win races and see what happens as the season progresses. But it is very reminiscent to the last couple of seasons for Chaz, just uh, where now he's into that mode where it's basically week by week, see what happens. And I think that's probably the biggest disappointment because I think whenever he switched to go 11, I certainly expected a step forward from him. I thought that he'd be, well, he is very relaxed and I think he's riding well but uh, circumstances have worked against him a little bit Estoril obviously enough losing a, a fast time in the qualifying session or a yellow flag on his qualifying lap affected him he qualifies down the order it's a struggle then in the opening couple of races comes away with a podium in race two after that and then Mizano was just a little bit a little bit of bad luck for him as well obviously that uh, incident into turn one or turn one and turn two on the Super Bowl race you always get that word. There's a little bit of a, a contraction in the field and a knock-on effect from everyone else turning in in front of you. Chaz just seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Has a crash. We saw him immediately shake off his shoulder and then that was why he ended up retiring from race two. So a little bit unfortunate for Chaz Davis. But you'd have to say, Gordo, that on the balance of things, Ducati have been pretty strong on a couple of races now. And uh, you'd certainly think that when we go to Donington, that for Reading, that becomes probably the most important race of the season so far. Yes, um, whether or not there's going to be any fans there to see it or not, but it's, it is a home round, it is a reset. Um, I think that if they've got serious designs on making Scott Reading the champion this year, they have to go away and, and get him ready for that weekend. This has to be clawing back. I mean, we're at round three. If we go the full season, there's going to be 13. Well, nothing's done yet, but uh, it's not the tend the the trend the tendency is not looking good. Um, with up and down, up and down, up and down. What does anybody need to beat Jonathan? Not being up and down to be up all the time. And if you can't be winning up, you can be second up or third up. And 
it's not quite there. If Jonathan was having so many problems, if there had been a couple of no scores from him, then fine, game on all the time. But look at where we are again. You you gave the stats earlier for Jonathan. He just seems to always manage to get there. He, he'd get off uh, an interaction with him in Aragon and still stayed up there. Um, and he had... Uh, it always seems to that near crash in, in race one and the save was one of the main talking points of the weekend and it's worthwhile looking at the photographs of his leg if you want to see quite how hard and how long he had to keep it up because he melted his knee slider down the leg of his leathers I've, yet to, I've never quite seen that before I have to say um, it, was an, it was an awesome display again of on a bad weekend and that's the bad weekend for those guys bad weekend for everybody else is, is not the same I wanted to ask you, Gordo, about the changes that we saw this weekend. Obviously, two qualifying tyres from Pirelli from now on, and uh, that's to try and negate any of the issues that uh, we had in Estoril when a yellow flag pretty much, you'd have to say, ruined a few riders' weekends. Yes, it's a, it's a positive and immediate step. I think that should be applauded. That They said, OK, we obviously had a problem we didn't envisage when we brought in the new rule, um, certainly not to the extent that it affected uh, Estoril. So, yeah, that's good. The problem still remains if it's your very last lap and it's right at the end. It's all right having two qualifiers. Um, but if something happens on your very last chance to put in a qualifier, you're in the same situation. But at least, if I if I were a team now, I'd be saying, OK, conditions are the same. Just go for a quick early one. Do one lap and then go for a... Get everyone, check everyone OK. Stick in a qualifier as quick as you can. Post a, hopefully, first or second roll up, And then at the end, really go for it and try and get that Super Bowl win. So it's brought another dynamic into play, or are you going to keep your two to the end and put in one and another one? So do get ready, 10 minutes of getting ready, and then bang, one lap, straight in, another time, go again. So the good thing about Pirelli and the way that they keep changing things, and the rules keep changing about tyres, is that it brings a different dynamic. And in general, the better teams will make a better job of that. And obviously enough, Gordo, the strategy is going to be important. I found it... uh... Very, very surprising that Tom Sykes, Mr. Superpole, the man that's the king of the one lap effort, that uh, he felt that they shouldn't have added another tyre. It's almost as if Tom has uh, one absolute advantage over the rest of the field and didn't want to give it up. But some other riders were uh, were were happy with the changes. Other riders said, why not just use a race tyre and just be done with the qualifying tyre? Yeah, I mean, Pirelli want you have the qualifying tyre. They always have. I can. I guess it's just a, a technical advancement. They can bring technical advancements through the, the qualifying tyre and try and uh, bring them into the range. This is what they did with the X tyre. Let's face it, the, people were saying, well, we can use the X the qualifier and for the short race. So you could use it maybe for both things. Now, we've actually ended up going the opposite direction I thought it would be, whereby some people might think, you know what, the qualifier itself is too, too much of a change for the bike setup, but that X tyre for the 10-lapper, I can use that for qualifying. Well, what's actually happening now is that people are now using the X-Tire for the full races. You know, not just the 10-lapper. Um, I think almost everybody in one of the races of the weekend. So, you know, that that's a significant shift in the way people are, are, are manipulating things. So, yeah, getting rid of them would make everybody fa- wouldn't make as, as dramatic a lap time for qualifying, but it would also lose a little bit. Super Bowl's already been denuded by having a race on a Saturday. It's no longer a big thing on Saturday. So to give Super Bowl a little bit of its status back, having two qualifiers and messing with the rules all the time, yeah, it may be a pain for some people, but it's also, we're talking about it. You know, on a weekend, there's plenty of things to talk about. So, you know, why not? Just, uh, you mentioned there, Gordo, about the X-Tire as well. And obviously enough, tires are always an interesting element in World SBK because I think for an awful lot of MotoGP fans, they struggle to understand that as the track temperatures go up, Superbike tyres get softer. Whereas in MotoGP with the Michelins, as the track temperature goes up, you tend to start using a harder and harder compound. Whereas like we saw this weekend, 55 degrees track temperatures, and everyone was able to use a tyre that's designed for a 10-lap Superbike race. So it does just show that uh, the Pirelli tyres, they are a little bit different than what you see in MotoGP, but you can actually go out and buy these for your own track day as well. Yeah, I mean, the standard tyres that you see in the range that are used at the races, and there's quite a lot of development tyres now, so you can't buy them, but the standard SC0 is in every every territory that sells Pirelli tyres for, for racing or track days. You can go and buy the same tyre. Um, and that's the whole point of Pirelli's way of doing things. It's not 
they're not making race tyres for ultimate performance. They just aren't doing it. They just decided not to. Twenty years, nearly well, eighteen years ago, they just decided we're not doing that. We're going to go a different way, um, because it's production. And now, the reason that they don't make road tyres for the Super Sport and even the Super Sport three hundred classes anymore is because so many people are using their tyres for track days all around the world, and that's redoubled since lockdown. When you weren't allowed to ride on the street, when you were allowed to go for a track day, people were going for three and four. So and they think, well, if I'm going on a track and I don't have to have a DOT tyre that the policeman's going to be happy with, I'll just buy slicks. So that's as a business thing, it's a totally different world for Pirelli and Bristol and Wendy Motor MotoGP, Michelin MotoGP now, and any other tyre manufacturer. They're making race tyres for race series, and I totally understand it. It's not like one philosophy is superior to the others. Just Pirelli have just got a different idea of what to do and how to go racing. And therefore, they're doing it as a direct business thing. The link between their tyres and the road tyres, they say, is much closer than anybody else. We're going to move straight into it with Top Rack Rise Gariaglu, Gordo, because I thought Top Rack's performance this weekend and Yamaha's performance as well was really impressive. I think this was another big step being made by Top Rack. And it was interesting after the race that uh, Top Rack was asked about whether or not he'll have an opportunity to move to MotoGP, which is obviously something that's been talked a little bit about in the paddock in the past, but it was also seen the top rack was probably a little bit rough around the edges for moving to MotoGP. But on the basis of what we've seen so far this season, I think we can put a lot of that to bed because top rack's had seven podiums. The only races he hasn't finished on the podium were in the wet conditions in Aragon, and he was still able to score decent points in those races. He's 20 points behind Jonathan Ray. And, you know, for me, it seems like one of those situations where... If Toprak doesn't get the chance to move now, he'll sign a two-year contract and he'll be 26, 27 by the time that contract ends. And by that point, it is too too late, realistically, to see a MotoGP team coming in and taking him across. Yeah, the great debate, uh, should you go to MotoGP or not? Um, obviously, Toprak's got great talent. Uh, he's finding a focus for it and getting him to point it in the right direction all the time has been a challenge for every team he's ever been in. Um, culturally, his way of thinking is just different from anybody else's. His way of training is different from everybody else's. Um, he's he's not the same cat as everybody else. He's his own person in a in a very very profound way. Um, but the team are now gradually moving him in a direction that will allow him to be the guy who's competitive every weekend. That's not just a technical thing. That's a, a mindset thing and an approach thing. Um, we don't want him to lose the kind of heartbreaking, all action. Um, we don't want him to be different. We just want him to be consistently able to challenge. Um, if he wants to go to MotoGP and somebody wants to take him, fantastic. It would be great for MotoGP to have a guy like him there. Um, is he going to be the next Marquez? Well, he's one of the riders that people talk about in pure talent terms and in very high regard. And we can see that when it works properly. But as you say, the thing that was most impressive this year is the consistency. So, the backroom guys are doing the job right because he's getting podiums all the time. He's he's learning that he has to start thinking the same way every weekend. He can't have good and bad weekends. I can't like or dislike this track. You can't do that. Not if you've got designs on being a world champion. And you certainly can't do that if you get designs on being a MotoGP rider. So, yeah, great debate. As always, is this rider good enough to go to MotoGP? Well, yeah, we could talk for a long time about this, but... Uh, not every MotoGP rider that comes to Superbike cuts it, and not every rider that goes from World Superbike to MotoGP cuts it. Sometimes it's nothing to do with riding ability. It's culture, it's mindset, it's been stuck in the same rut for 10 years. Yeah, most times it's not really down to talent. All these riders are talented. And I think one of the things that for Top Rack that's made a big difference is the last three years working with Phil Marin as his crew chief, first with Pichetti, and then whenever they both switched across to the Crescent squad. And I think when you look at the influence that someone like Phil's had on Top Rack, it's been very profound because up until he started working with Phil, you'd have to say, well, Keenan was the guiding light for everything for Top Rack. Took him under his wing and really worked on that men- mentor, mentoring Top Rack into being a top line rider. But there was a lot of things that Top Rack did that you shouldn't do at that stage. And there was a lot of times whenever he was too easily distracted or he didn't understand how to get the most out of things over a course of a full race. And I thought working with Phil in 2019, we saw a big change from him in Phillip Island, 
right from the start of the season, he went out and he was trying to learn how to manage the tyre. And he could do it in the practice sessions. But once he got into the race, he was smoking it up coming through Stoner Corner and the last corner. And, you know, he just used his tyre up because in a race, he couldn't quite keep a cool enough head. He was reacting to what was happening around him. And I remember the, the next round was in Bury Ram and Keenan showed up for that round and Toprak was too distracted. He was always trying to see what Keenan had to had to say and the input from Keenan on uh, how to get the bike to work. And I think when we went back to Europe, there was a big sea change where Toprak and Pichetti and Phil basically said, we've got to focus on being able to make the results count. You've got a ton of talent, but you've got to be the one that actually fulfills that talent. And from that point onwards, there was a big change in top rack. And year on year, we've seen him improve at the tracks where he struggled. Like For our season preview, we talked about Aragon was going to be a real test for top rack. Would he pass that with flying colours? He'd have podium in the opening race of the year. And I think that there was a lot of things that's happened for him now that just showed that he is a real complete rider. And I actually thought the Super Bowl race was one of those moments as well because he was leading the race in, in the mid-stages Rinaldi goes past him, Toprak gives chase, and he has a couple of moments. He had one big moment on the run into the last corner, and then he just kind of said, no, no, I'll take me nine points, I'll settle for second, and I'll try and win this afternoon's race. And I don't think that would have happened a few years ago. Yes. No, I agree with you. Um, I think that it's all very well being a battling rider and so on, but you have to use your head as much as anything else. Winning World Championships is as much about head as anything else. In fact, it's arguably more. That, why do you think Jonathan wins all those championships? It's not just talent. It's not just the machine in the backup. It's using your nut when you when you really need to at the right time. Um, and that's called maturity. When riders are younger, you know, I mean, Top Rack's not a kid, but he's also a younger rider for his, for the average superbike uh, potential champion. Um, he, he has changed and he will have to continue to change. I don't think, I don't quite agree with you that he's a complete rider yet. I think there's still quite a lot to go with, with him. But look at what he's doing now when he's still not a complete rider. He's, 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 he's a more complete rider. And obviously that is down to Phil and the, and the good influences that he's having. Um, but there's two things as well that you've got to remember about Keenan, who was the, the all-time great super sport rider, is that he is a super sport rider. He was a super sport rider. He did one year in Superbike, um, not in the best bike in, in, in a bad time. Um, but, that's, you know, the only person that can make Top Rack the world champion is Top Rack now. Keenan can't make him a Superbike World Champion. He's never done that before. And that's no disrespect to Keenan, who is an incredible competitor and a quite brilliant 600 rider. He can make that thing do stuff that other people couldn't even dream of. So not taking away anything away from anybody, but this is a different game when you're riding in World Superbike Championship than it is from World Supersport, especially in the era now when you've got one dominant rider. Your factory is still growing. The overall Yamaha effort is still growing uh, relative to a couple of others. Um, and there's still a lot of work to be done for everybody. But if you were in a, if you asked me about a rider in a good position to stay or to go to another championship, I think Top Rack's in the perfect place. He is quite clearly the 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 to me the top guy in the Yamaha. So he's going to get more of that focus and uh, and love from Yamaha to get to move on, and especially when he wins a race. That nothing, you can't do anything better than win a race to, for your prospects but in every possible regard yeah and Yamaha aren't uh, aren't badly placed Gordo as well obviously Toprak's 24 Garrett Gerloff is I think about 8 months older than Toprak as well and the two of them you know, they've shown themselves to be the two most exciting prospects on the Superbike grid They're, both of them have been proper box office this year every time, every time you're looking at the screen you're trying to catch a glimpse to see what yeah. they're doing yeah 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 no absolutely it's an exciting uh, lineup. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not. But you can't you can't not watch them. And behind that, you've got a Japanese rider in Ozani, who's obviously he's learning. It's a totally different culture shock for him. Everything, but he's doing okay. And Locatelli, who's already had a couple of good rides and was I mean sky high miles better than everybody else. Okay, on the best bike last year, but also sky high better than everybody else on very similar bikes in Supersport after an entire career in a different paddock on different types of bikes. So, that ain't bad. That If you're, if you're Yamaha, you're thinking, mm, that's not that's good, that. A couple of years ago, we were talking about Yamaha in case of, well, who's their number one rider? Well, right now, it's Top Rack. 
but the number two is pretty blooming close. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting is that over the last few years, Yamaha have tried to go down that strategy. You look at it with Lowe's and Vandermark. You look at it with Vandermark and Toprak. You look at it with Toprak and Gerloff. You look at it where Locatelli, like you said, Gordo, has a lot of potential. But he, at the end of the day, what he did in the Supersport class last year was tremendous. And he's already been able to show some good performances on a Superbike. I actually thought he did well in Mizano as well because this was a... a Tough weekend. This wasn't an easy weekend for anyone. Really high track temperatures, really difficult conditions. And uh, he was able to come away with, I think it was 15 points over the weekend, which doesn't sound like a lot, but he actually progressed. Every session, he seemed to get a bit faster. He seemed to learn a little bit. And I thought, you know, that's what you want to see from a young rider. Yes, and young, and especially young in the, in the class. Um, you need Progression is all you need to see. You just need people to be better even if the results aren't better they have to be better because then the results will come because other factors are at play there's a thousand factors that affect how any rider's weekend goes but Locatelli's in a good position um, because he's already on a factory bike which says something about how they believe in him um, he's not on the GRT junior team he's in the real team and he might maybe he'll be in that position next year or not who knows but ultimately even when when they've moved the GRT level of equipment up to be basically the factory for Gerloff, it doesn't matter where the Yamaha riders go. It looks like there are four factory bikes, certainly three. Okay, the differences between a factory bike and a non-factory bike now are small. I mean, really, it's, the rider makes more of a difference than the bike does, as long as the setup's good. Um, but no, look, I tell you, there's no reason why he can't come good. He's done three rounds. He's never ridden Superbike before. I didn't like it. So, it, that's that's pretty good going that he's top 10 you know he's three points behind Davies yeah and I think it's going to be interesting to see how he goes next time out in Donington because that is a track where we've seen Yamaha have pretty good success in the past Michael Vandermark of course did a double win a few years ago we've seen Lowe's fast there even Cameron Cameron Bobier, whenever he just showed up for one or two weekends qualified inside the top 10 gave a good account of himself so I'm quite keen to see what happens with Yamaha next time out but obviously enough Gordo can't really talk world superbikes and not talk about the world champion. Although we've done a good job. We're 40 minutes into the show before Jonathan Ray really gets a proper mention. But uh, for Johnny, this was... I thought this was actually a really good weekend. He didn't seem to have the just that ultimate pace compared to some of the other guys. But he was able to do a good job of maximizing what he could do. And I thought this was a weekend where Kawasaki with three third place finishes for Ray. Lowe's went 5-5 five, five, and 6. Could easily have been three top five finishes for him. And I thought that they actually did a good job of managing the weekend. And I think that's the key thing for Kawasaki is that both riders were able to find something that gave them consistency across the weekend, even though it was pretty clear they were struggling on the front end. Yes, um, they tried different tyres from they would normally do just because the conditions forced them into it and the nature of the track maybe forced them into it. It didn't work out perfectly well. We saw Ray's nearly crash, which he may not have had that same issue when it, with a harder tyre. He did eventually go back to that. But again, he just didn't have the pace because he did that. So they were in a bit of issue just because of the characteristics of the bike um, and the way the Kawasaki normally works. You've got every kind of corner at Mizano, the fast ones that the, the Kawasaki seems to like, and then the slower ones in succession, not stop, go, the Kawasaki works very well, stop, through the corner, go again. It works very well there, and it also has good stability at high speed. The trouble with Mizano is a lot of those high-speed corners are getting slower, and a lot of those um, stop-go opportunities actually aren't, because there's another corner right after. You're not like you're maximising all the way down the straight or whatever. So, it's yeah, it's a t- Mizano was tough. The, the track temperature was obviously massively different from most of the testing. Kawasaki tests like crazy in the winter. Obviously this year with the, the limitations on testing, they might only have went somewhere and tested for half a day. They went here because the weather conditions didn't go out once. So they have tested a lot, but they've been saving a day, so they might only have tested half a day. But the weather conditions, completely different. And that makes uh, Mizano's weekend was the first time we've had an absolute steam bath of a race weekend and I mean Reading himself again said uh, very recently that testing in the winter is a waste of time for your race setup. it's alright for developing parts for the bike and trying things back to back and all that but it's an absolute waste of time for because Ducati the other thing is Ducati tested 
at Mizano and Reading still finished four, four and four. Obviously enough, Gordo, just to go back to Ray as well. This was this was, I think, a tough weekend for Johnny. We saw obviously the big save, you've already mentioned it, but he was in that position because Rinaldi was putting him under pressure and he was trying to stay with Rinaldi, didn't quite have it. And uh, you know, Johnny said, like, look, a, a crash like that, if it happens, it happens. A save like that, you can't really account for it. But uh, he was able to get himself up and uh, still claim 16 points for third. I thought what was interesting was in race two, it looked at one stage like he actually had the legs on Rinaldi. It looked like he, in the middle of the race that he had a chance. And I was asking him about that, and he said that uh, he thought that as well. And he tried to make his usual changes that he'd make during a race, changing his engine braking strategies, changing all of the, the different electronics strategies on the bike. And he said that typically he moves in one direction with them. But because of the track conditions in Misano, it turns out that was the wrong thing to do. The track was so grippy in Misano that even as he changed the, the settings to make the bike a little bit freer, it still just kept gripping, gripping, gripping. And that was what caused him maybe not to have that potential at the end of the race. And I thought it was really interesting that Ray still, even at this stage, seven years into his time with Kawasaki, all that experience, that he can still learn something good and fundamental that he should be able to then apply later in the season if we get into any sort of similar circumstances. Yes, I mean, the riders can make quite a few changes during the races, uh, given the, the, the various maps that are on the bike. They are still allowed to, to play with these things during the middle of the race. Um, but yes, the thing about Johnny, and part of the reason why he is where he is and has the career he's had, is that ability to learn and take things more seriously. Even after last year when he changed his exercise routine in the winter, because we had the longer winter break, he again kind of fundamentally changed the, the way he trains and he got a new trainer who came from a rugby background who was getting him to do weights and stuff like that to, to, to put muscle here and not there and bit to reduce his weight a little bit overall as well and Johnny never did that before it was always like stay thin get to get fit get enough strength but to aerobically train more the rugby guys changed the way he did and that's helping Jonathan in races as well it's making him stronger pound for pound um so that's a factor of Jonathan. He never used to have a spotter out on track. He never used to have somebody helping him to literally helping him around the lap. Now he's got Fabian Forey, who's doing that for him and obviously to great success. All his championships have been different, Jonathan, and he, he's moved on with the times. Every time something's changed and he felt it was worthwhile making an alteration in the way he approaches things. And that's continuing, as you say. There was something else he learned. He's not scared to learn. So you mentioned there about the influence of someone like Fabian for Johnny, having him as a spotter to just give him some instant feedback. Obviously, this was the first weekend this season where Alex Lowe's didn't have that. He didn't have Florian Marino trackside for him and uh, Florian, of course, racing in the Endurance World Championships. He was at Le Mans. And this was this was a tough weekend for Lowe's in some ways. He was obviously there or thereabouts, but not quite where he would have wanted to be. He came away with a fifth, fifth and a sixth. But I thought this was actually a weekend where he did a really good job of just consolidating what he could get. And uh, it's one of those ones where, you know, now that you get to that point, that's where the spotter really becomes important because that's just to unlock that last little bit of potential that you need. Yes. Um, his brother was around, so I'm sure he helped him in certain things. But I think Alex, the problem with Alex this weekend was ultimately, no matter what he did, he just couldn't get the bike to work the way he wanted to. The... Kawasaki is not the Yamaha or the Suzuki or even the BSB Honda that he raced before, even though they're all four cylinders. Um, there are some areas where the Kawasaki is not as good as, for example, the Yamaha that he raced last year. And he actually said, uh, he didn't quite say that, but he also said when Gerloff went past them at the end, he said it was like he was on a different racetrack. He was just gone. There was keeping his line, his ability to drive and turn at the same time all the things that he remembered from that time, Gerloff had, but in other ways, his Kawasaki would be better than the Yamaha, but not this weekend, in those conditions, without the, with the lack of time on any racetrack on that bike. Remember, he had, didn't have a big hot summer of races last year. He had a very condensed first season on the Kawasaki and didn't go to this track. Then he went to Donington. Half the tracks to face, he wouldn't have been to on the Kawasaki. So it's like turning up for the first time again. And we saw the result of that at the weekend. He was... I think, 5th, 5th and 6th. 
So now, though, but those are all good results. That's a much more mature Alex than the one we saw even a couple of years ago. He accepted where he was. He pushed as hard as he could, but he had to accept that. Well, I'm better off doing this and just oh, I can't watch them going away, trying too hard and falling off. So he did have. A, he actually had a good weekend as a rider and a disappointing weekend as an overall package. He just expected more from the weekend. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll hold my hands up, Gordo, and uh, apologise to Sam as well for that, because obviously he was there doing an awful lot of spot in that trackside. But I thought that uh, on the base of what we've seen from the opening three rounds of the year, we've seen a big step forward from Lowe's. You know, Aragon, obviously very impressive to come away with three podiums, but I thought Estoril, if he hadn't had the penalty in the Super Bowl session, he would have had a really strong weekend. And then last weekend was a tough one, that you know he was top five, top six all the way through. So I think he's made a big step forward and he's doing exactly what Kawasaki need him to do, which is score decent points. You know, he's, I think it's 16 points behind Scott Redding in the championship as it stands right now. So, you know, he's there or thereabouts. And uh, you'd certainly think that home round in Donington next, Aston, he's always gone well and he's at a pole position there and some good results. So you'd certainly expect that he's going to be able to be a bit of a factor in the next couple of rounds. Yes, I think uh, definitely. I think uh, Mizano, all things being equal, Mizano might have been a bit of a blip. Um, you can't imagine Donington and Aston are going to be quite as hot as Mizano was. So there's one factor taken out. Um, and, I mean, Alex is there, but I think he's realised that the, he certainly spoke around the, at the weekend about the Kawasaki isn't just like the best bike in the championship. It's got characteristics that are better than some other bikes, but some other bikes have got characteristics that are better than that. But as a rounded package, he keeps saying it. He must have said it half a dozen times this year. Jonathan is just making it work better than me. But Jonathan is the, the exceptional talent of his age. So when you look at how Alex is performing relative to that, this season, when things have been tough, when it hasn't been easy, he still managed to perform. And after all the other names I've heard about, Ronaldo winning two races at the weekend, Gerloff keep talking about, Vandermark, Sykes, Davies, etc. Lowe's is fourth in the championship and he hasn't had an uninterrupted good start to the season. He's had that big problem in Estoril that affected some others. But he's still fourth in the championship. And with riders like Razgat, Lyogor and Reading ahead of you, I don't think any one of half a dozen riders would be ashamed to be fourth in the championship. He's disappointed. He wants more. No surprise there. He's a race winner. He wants to win races and he wants to go harder and he wants to at least be finishing only behind Jonathan. So, yeah, I mean, he wants to win it. But in the, this day and age, at the moment, that seems to be Jonathan, if all, all things are equal, is still the guy you beat. So, yeah, for a, a start, a difficult start to the year, especially with that qualifying in Estoril, he's actually doing pretty good. Yeah, we've obviously got uh, through the show looking at the top three manufacturers. We've got a bit of a break before Donington, though, a couple of weeks off. And uh, during that time, we're going to come back on the Paddock Pass podcast and talk about what we've seen from Honda and BMW because it's been a mixed bag from both of them so far this season. A bit of disappointment for both of them. And uh, we'll be back with another Superbike show just to give everyone an update on how the season's progressed for them so far. Obviously enough, Gordo, it's... Uh, been a busy stretch for us we've had three races and three rounds in the opening four weeks of the season and uh, you got a couple of weeks at home now what's the plan the plan is to continue working the plan is to uh, get outside and get some fresh air about me rather than being stuck in an office or at home quarantining or whatever um, and enjoy the fact that it's actually what the passes for summer in Scotland uh, I might even watch some football Although after yesterday's uh, performance from Scotland in the Euros, I'll maybe won't be, and maybe I wouldn't be watching any football. Well, I tell you what, Gordo, it could it could be worse. It could be where you're sitting at home and you don't have a team's cheer for it. Oh, I know that feeling, unfortunately, too well. In fact, the last time Scotland went to the any kind of major championship, I wasn't even working in World Superbike, and I've been in World Superbike since there was dinosaurs walking about the paddock, mate. Hey, you were back in your two-stroke five hundred days for that one, Gordo. Oh, mate. Two strokes. I miss two strokes. I do miss two strokes. I love them. I mean, I know they're, they're probably evil-smelling, planet-killing motorbikes, but oh man, every time I smell a two-stroke, I'm back on the grid at Knock Hill wondering what the hell I'm doing there. Why did I do this reckless, silly thing like start racing? Thankfully, I, I was quite slow and near the back and quite safe, but every time I smell two-stroke, I just, I'm straight back on the grid at Knock Hill. I love two-strokes. I love them. I wish we could find a way of racing them still, because they are just mad 
it's the soundtrack of my uh, early biking experiences were all two strokes. I didn't have a four stroke till I was about I don't know twenty five. Everything was a two stroke. I was going to say that uh, I remember the first races I went to were obviously road races, national road races here in Ireland. And uh, the one two fives and two fifties were out first, and there was one time there was a local race here in Dundalk actually, and uh, as it was at the time, there were like little cracks clearly in the security because I was out for a cycle, and uh, I had clearly missed the course car going around, right. and uh, <laughs> I, I just happened. I was like I don't know thirteen, fourteen years old at this stage, and I just happened to cycle out onto what was effectively a live racetrack just minutes before the start of practicing in the Dundalk races. And um, finally, after like, you know, a, a stretch between between the roads, I was looking at like all the lamp, all the the traffic, the, the traffic lights and uh, any signs and road lights and all this kind of stuff. And I started thinking like, what's all what's with all the bales on them and then you know i suddenly saw like some marshal just looking absolutely aghast that someone was out on the middle of the road and he immediately came running down grabbed me off the road pulled me off in off off the road into a ditch and uh then within about like a minute uh, Robert Dunlop came flying past us and uh, needless to say it was it was one of those close encounters that uh, probably should have been enough to scare me off motorbike racing for the rest of my life but uh, instead uh, probably made it where it was, it was a little bit more exciting. It's the scares that keep you going mate, it's the scares that keep you going See, you're terrified at the time and then you go back oh that was great I'll do that again, that's, that's why people go back to racing, it's inherently an unreasonable thing to do, motorbike racing I mean it is, it just is, it's an unreasonable way of making a living but um, it's it's the most compelling sport I can imagine. It really is, you know. In, in a safe day and age, age, we're still doing these things. Well, the guys are scratching on the track. We're scratching to try and make a living, and that's why it's uh, important to have so much support for the Paddock Pass podcast at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. We've got a lot of supporters on that Patreon account now, and it really has made a big difference for us to be able to keep the the Paddock Pass podcast rolling. And uh, you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. And for that, you'll get an extra show almost every week. And uh, you'll also then, for $10 a month, be able to become a Paddock Insider. And that's where you'll get your Paddock Notes show from a Grand Prix week. Weekend. So, from myself, Steve English, from Gordon Ritchie, a big thank you from everyone else at the Paddock Pass Podcast team for your support on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And until the next time on the pod, a big thank you for listening to today's show. Thank you, mate. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Those few seconds of silence, Gordo, they weren't just for Scotland's hopes in the Euros. Oh, mate. We'll thrash <laughs> England 6 9, obviously. And then, obviously. And then uh, we'll pay somebody in Hungary to take a dive, we'll be fine. So, I'll, I'll be honest, Gordo, I'm not willing to say it where we're being recorded, what I actually think about the English prospects, because otherwise that would be used against me. Yes. <laughs>